Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Pals with Bill Wadman uh, after a long hiatus. Hope everyone's doing well out there. Uh, to get this going again, I brought back my good friend, Chris Malamphy, who is a pop critic and chart analyst. Uh, he writes the Wise Song Number One column on Slate and has his own podcast, Hit Parade, which is a huge hit. Uh, you know, I was going to, <laughs> I actually hit record and we got talking so quickly, we just kind of fell into it. So let's uh, just jump in in progress. Hope you guys enjoy the conversation. You're too hot or I'm too hot? I'm too hot. My mic is too hot. Too hot. Too hot. That was a big track. Too hot. It should have been bigger. That that's that's. There's a period of cool in the gang just before they really hit big with celebration. That <laughs> yeah. like around seventy nine, eighty, where like their shit was too hot's a great song. Jones versus Jones is a really good song. They had the new sweet voiced singer James J T Taylor. Okay, but they hadn't gone full schlock yet. They hadn't gone full Joanna. I don't even mind Joanna. Joanna is no. a fine song, but. They were bet, you know, or um, get down on it. I think that's actually after celebration. I think that's eighty two. Get down on it's a great song. Joanna sounds like a tune that was written by a pro, like a Diane Warren. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like you know what? I should know in. that. Who wrote Joanna? I wonder if they wrote it within the band or if it was an outside. It's probably outside songwriters. That's a very good question. Sounds like it, it, right? It totally does. Somebody. You're totally right. uh, oh, it turned out Diane Warren wrote Elder Barge uh, Rhythm of the Night. Yes, that I knew. That's Which that's her, is like, that's wait, her what? First breakthrough hit. <laughs> Which is crazy. And it's one of the few Diane Warren songs I like. I have been throwing shade at Diane Warren <laughs> for years. I I find most of her stuff unforgivable schlock. She was on um what's the hidden record? You know, the the thing uh, the, yes. What was that? The other day and she was she was swearing up a storm. Oh yeah, she's 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 curious like a sailor. She's yeah. a wonderful interview. She's got a great sense of humor. She's so smart. Yeah. She's clearly talented. I mean, for crying out loud, you don't yeah. make that many hits unless you're talented as fuck. Yeah. It's just I don't like the end product nine times out of ten. I've liked God, what have I liked by her? I liked Unbreak My Heart by Tony Braxton. Sure. I thought it was an exceptionally good single. I like Rhythm of the Night. And I've softened on some of hers. Like, I didn't like Blame It on the Rain in 1989, but now I sort of regard it as one of her okay songs. Uh, what about the Aerosmith? Uh, I despise that Aerosmith song with every fiber of my being. And, and wait, hate, 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 hate that song. What's the one that... Um, uh, 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 because You Loved Me by Celine Dion. Yeah, that, that one. That, no, the, that, the that does nothing that, for uh, me. What's her name did? The Young Country Girl and Trisha Yearwood. How do I live... I got to say, I'm up the middle on how do I live. Do you prefer one over the other? I think the Trisha Yearwood versus the um, Leanne Rimes. Leanne Rimes. Leanne Rimes was the bigger hit, right? It was the bigger hit. And in this case, I think the public got it right. I actually like the Leanne Rimes better. Yeah. Yeah. Are we talking right now? Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Uh, No, I just wanted to- The reason I pulled my phone out is I'm curious now about Joanna. (laughs) I want to know who wrote that thing. Cool in the gang song. Joanna, cool in the gang song. Songwriters. Oh, they wrote it. I wonder if they got help from anybody because no, the the songwriters are the band. It's like nine or really? seven songwriters, and it's J.T. Taylor, Robert e. Earl Bell. It's it's the members of the band. Good for them, man. They wrote a quality song, and I don't even like Joanna that much, but I don't dislike it. It's like it's just there. <laughs> I love the idea that it's just like yeah, Joanna's a good song. I knew a girl uh, who was my sister's best friend down the street. Her brother was my best friend as kids. Like the four of us used to mm-hmm. build sports in the wood and stuff. And her name is Joanna. She's now the uh, chief operating officer and president of JetBlue. 
Damn. So you get emails from Joanna Garrity all the time, and she's like my friend I used to like build forts with when I was a kid, <laughs> which really cracks me up whenever I see her now. I'm like, Joanna, what's going on? She's just like, uh. I'm like, you live in spreadsheets, don't you? She's like, yeah. That's all I do. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm in the freaking airline industry, and everybody hates us. Yeah. All, like all the time. Yeah. I mean. Why do people... I, it's like a necessary thing. Anyway, whatever. That's a whole other thing. Okay. So here's the thing. I've been reading. I've been listening to a bunch of the recent episodes. Yeah. Should, do I, are we starting? Should I introduce myself? Are we doing any of that? Yeah, we can do that. Uh, so I think you are the first person to come back. Am I? Yeah, I think you are. Oh, now I'm very flattered. <laughs> Chris Moampi's here. Uh, I, I asked him to come back because we want to talk about uh, music charts a little bit more. Sure. Um, and you are the guy. One of the guys. I'm 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 one of the guys. I have a specific bespoke, you know. Do you guys have this. a club or they're like seventeen people who have jackets that are chart analysts? <laughs> if there are, I, I'm not part of it. Uh like the five timer club on SNL. Yeah. yeah. N- no, I I have not met Fred Bronson. I have not met Joel Whitburn. I, I have not met Paul Grine. And and none of those guys do what I do anymore. Yeah. Um you know, I guess the current guys are like Gary Trust at Billboard. He's their resident chart nerd, knows the stats, does the Hot 100 Roundup every week. Um, who else? There are not many. It's a honestly. specific thing. It's a very specific thing. It's it's like an oddly, uh, forgive me, but like a slightly spectrumy kind of thing to like think I, about charts that way. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Um it's like the same people who are who are baseball stats nerds, you know. That is a great analogy I make. I say this is my sports all the time. Yeah, that is yeah. that is an analogy I myself make. Um, and but all of those people you listed, general age range, your age. There's no there's no uh, commonality. Okay. Um, I don't know anybody. My, you know, I'm now fifty. Right. I don't know anybody right in my Gen X wheelhouse who does this. I think Gary Trust is a little younger than me. Okay. I don't know Gary Trust's age, but like, no, it, it it's a it's a small club. Yeah, there's and, there's no twenty two year old YouTubers uh, doing chart analysis. I meet other people who are chart geeks, and here's the thing: there are chart nerds out in the world, people who write constantly to Billboard or write to Gary Trust, you know, yeah. or tweet at him who can do the stats trick better than I can. I am not, I'm not the guy who's going to have total recall on everything, although I have very good recall on a lot. Um, the, sig- the special sauce I bring to the table, what I bring to the table is I think like a critic, but I, and write like a critic, but I know a whole lot about how the charts work. I, yeah. ex- I can explain how they function, but I talk like a critic. And so the reason I have this gig the reason I get called in, whether it's this podcast right now or NPR, all things considered or whatever, is because if they're looking for somebody who thinks and talks like a critic would or a cultural analyst, but can explain the minutia of how the charts function, sure. it, I'm, I'm the guy. Yeah. I, uh, I once heard an interview with, um, this is a weird di- digression, I once heard an interview with Christopher Walken okay. where he said, uh, you know what's great about my career? I'm doing a terrible yeah. Christopher Walken impression right now. It's like <laughs> if they if guys in Hollywood say we need that Christopher Walken type, they have to call me. Yeah, like that's I I read that and I laughed and I also said that's kind of me. It's like we need a Chris Melanfi type. You, you found a niche. I found a niche. You have a you have a good agent and a publicity I know. person. No, you although <laughs> you know. 
No, my agent is my Malamphy.com website. Yeah. The smartest thing I did when I updated my website, and I updated my website since the last time I sat down with you, I think I did it in 2019. Uh, the smartest thing I did was including a contact me link. Right. <laughs> because that turns out to be the most important part of the website. More important than the articles I'm posting. All I'm doing is repeating the articles that appear everywhere else. But it turns out that the contact me link, I've gotten more gigs from that than anything. It's, it's amazing how much of life comes down to people being able to get in touch with you. Totally. <laughs> Simple as that. I, I have some notes. Uh, Ooh, notes. Yeah, well, you know, here's the thing. So I was listening to... Um, you talk a lot about things being number ones. You also talk about things being great records. Sure. But it seems like there's a distinction between those two things. Hmm. But implicitly, shouldn't something having gotten to number one based upon some sort of democratic system of people listening or buying or all the rest of it, automatically designated a great song like who are you to make a distinction that the masses don't make do you, do you understand yeah yeah no i get it i mean because uh, another reason i have this gig is that i'm explaining the weird mix of art and commerce that makes records hits sure and commerce is a big part of it yeah you know um some of it is luck by the way you know the reason Get Lucky peaks at number two by Daft Punk in the summer of 2013 instead of going to number one like everybody thought it should have is because it had the misfortune to peak behind Blurred Lines, which happened to be huge that year. You right. know, like yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that kind of, you know, unluckiness. That record's eight or nine years old now. Isn't that scary? Yeah. That's insane. Eight, no, seven. If you had asked me, no, I would eight, have said- You're right, you're right. Eight years old. Sorry, I would have said the 2015 yeah. maybe. Pardon? You know, I would have said 2015. No, 2013. 2013. Yeah, wow. Okay. Anyway- <laughs> um, so some of it's luck, yeah. um, chart position, you know, um, sometimes the public has to marinate with a song. For example, if I asked you what's journey's highest charting hit, what would you say? Yeah. Uh, probably I'd say don't stop believing, but it's Cor correct. You would say that, but yeah. wrong because right. that peaked at number nine, which is very, very good. It's a top 10 hit. Faithfully. No, that, that, believe it or not, Faithfully didn't crack the top 10. Weirdly. Interesting. I think it peaked in the teens somewhere. It's one of their better songs. Which is now one of, now it gets played more than their bigger, no, their biggest hit is um, Open Arms, which peaked at number two. Right, which is a song I never was a big fan of. But, okay, this is a case in point. This is a great example. I, and, and frankly, I'm, I'm toying with doing a hit parade episode about this. I'm trying to figure out how to hone it into a theorem. Yeah. But, um, the public has clearly decided that Journey's song for the ages, rightfully, I agree with the public on this, is Don't Stop Believing." But it took us decades to figure that out. Yeah. In the moment, in 1981, by the way, both of those songs, Open Arms and Who's, uh, sorry, Open Arms and Don't Stop Believing." I almost said their third hit from that album, Who's Crying Now, which I think peaked at number four. Right. They all came from the same album, their biggest album of the 80s, an album called Escape. But at that time- the ballad did better because ballads often do better, or it, it did back then. Ballads actually don't do so well on the charts right now for all sorts of right. you know macro reasons. But back then, the it was sort of a natural that the slow dance prom like ballad would do better than the anthemic you know fist pumper. It just kind of worked out that way, and it, it, there's it made some kind of sense like, oh, well, of course, if you think to the eighties, right, the power ballad was ascendant. Right. And often if I asked you what's Europe's biggest chart hit, you'd probably say the final countdown course, yeah, that's because that's their iconic song. No, their biggest hit was their ballad carry. Oh, I which remember that tune. Nobody will recall now, but I think it peaked at number three, whereas the final countdown, I think peaked in the lower half of the top 10. Yeah. And I mean, even a band like Europe, like 
okay, you've, you've got two songs that people remember. Right. These guys are not living in giant mansions somewhere. Or are they? I, th- mm, I think they're probably doing quite well off the final countdown. The final countdown is if especially I think because it was it, a hit in the eighties and not a hit. If that was a hit in two thousand nine, maybe it wouldn't have made as much money. Does it, I mean is is there some correlation? Because the music business exploded in the nineteen eighties. I mean, even your even your question about the uh, ballads thing. You know, the rock bands were not doing ballads in 1975. It was... By and large, no. Right. It's like the rock, the, you know, the ballads... Like I think Beth by Kiss was 76. Right. But that was a holdover from his last band, right? They didn't even yeah. want to do that track. Right. And they, they really questioned whether it was a good idea and whether they were going to sully their image by doing that. By the way, good song, actually. Beth is a good song. It's and a- uh, well used in Beautiful Girls, that movie. Do you ever use that? Oh, I've seen that movie, but it's been decades. Wow. Yeah. I haven't thought there's about a, that There's a, a great time. use of that where... Uh, Rappaport's like pulling snow out of his ex-girlfriend's house because he used to pack snow against her garage just to be a jerk. And he's like kind of crying and like doing the opposite of that in order to like, you know, save And was face. the character's name Beth? Uh, no, I don't think it was. I think it was just great. You, uh, just the song was pretty, you know. I and think the song's anomalous on every level because didn't the Peter Chris, the drummer, sang sing, it. Sang that one? Because it was from his band. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it's just, yeah, le- like weird leftover stuff. But I mean, but that feels like a weird anomaly. By the time you're talking about in the early 80s, mm. power ballads were like one of the big things. Right. So, and they only got bigger as the decade went on. Yeah. And and so so in some ways, and that's the reason why bands like White Snake or all these sort of hair metal bands mm-hmm. had some level of popular stuff is because people loved the power ballads as much as they liked right. the other Even stuff. the rockin' ones, right? Like Here I Go Again is kind of a rockin' power ballad. Yeah. Not really exactly archetypal of the form but do you think that or you know sweet child of mine by by guns and roses their only number one hit sure. is effectively a power ballad you but, know but do you think that those those trait uh, those um uh that kind of bubble that happens yeah. right because by 2000 people weren't doing power ballads anymore or right. it was a different thing that those are driven by some sort of person or a group of people who says let's start doing these power ballads or do you think it is just happenstance and one becomes a hit and they just start piling on and then eventually people get sick of it for whatever reason. More the latter than the former. There's, there's calculation involved in the music business all the time, but the calculation is I think more seat of the pants that you, you get a spectrum of people who, uh, people's impressions of the music business. Some people think that it's all premeditated and pre-programmed yeah. and, and they decided that, four and years ago a, that you're going to like this song now. Correct. Yeah. Right. And that's not right. Of course. And then there are people who think it's completely organic and like, Oh, this is just kind of, you know, the public. No, there's some, there's calculation and there's machinations and so on and so forth. The truth is somewhere in the middle. And, and often I like to quote William Goldman's famous line about the movie business. Nobody knows anything. Right. You know, Hollywood tries to calculate what's going to put butts in seats. And other than Marvel having big, big hits, virtually nothing is is actually calculable. You know, it's getting more calculable than it was 30 years ago. But it's it's still there's an element of randomness to what becomes a hit. And that's even more true, I would argue, in the music business, like things that seem on paper like, oh, man, this is going to be huge. Go nowhere. Um, I, I can't remember what context I brought it up in. But I, I wrote about a song that I thought was so empty when it came out. It was a, a duet between Iggy Azalea, the year that Iggy Azalea was big, right. and Jennifer Lopez called Booty. Okay. And it was a pretty big club record, but they tried to promote it with a super sexy video and get it up the charts. And I think it peaked at number 18. Yeah. 
And Surprising. Like, it had all the ingredients. And, and, you know, these two model gorgeous women showing off their asses in a video and singing about their booties did nothing, you yeah. know? Because it wasn't a good song? It was not a good song. And but, so ultimately it does come down to fundamentals then. Then again. You would hope it would. You would hope it would. But then again, sometimes a song is number one because it's Drake. Yeah. You know, like since I last sat down here, Drake has scored a slew of more number one hits. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think Way Too Sexy, which is his latest number one hit just a few weeks ago, which interpolates I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred is a very good song. Right. But it went to number one because it's Drake and because out of all the tracks on his new album, he decided to shoot a video for it and promote it. Yeah. Or, it, or people just have nostalgia for Right Said Fred's song. I mean, does that happen a lot? I think, I think are- a Drake song was going to be number one the week he released that album. And if he had not done a song about, you know, interpolating, uh, I, in fact, I know this for a fact because I, I invoked you recently because, uh, uh, we, we talked about this the last time I sat in this chair, yeah. whether it's possible to compare old chart feats and new chart feats. Yeah. Cause you were making a hard argument, which I don't entirely disagree with that it's impossible. You're always comparing apples to oranges to kumquats on the charts because the rules and the, yeah, the rules the, have the, changed and yeah, all the time. So Drake, I know for a fact he would have had a number one hit if there had been no way too sexy. It would not have been about people's nostalgia for right said Fred, because one week in early October, late September, when he dropped his latest album, nine of the top 10 songs in the Hot 100 that week, thanks to streaming, yep. were Drake well, okay, records. That's exactly- so whatever was number two that week, I can't even remember which one it was, would have been number one if Way Too Sexy had not It's existed. funny, that's actually one of my questions, which is, in the age of streaming, is there is there any meaning to the word single anymore if every mm. song on an album is individually streamable and buyable? then everything's a single all the time. Yes. And so if something's a number one album and everyone's listening to the album over and over again, those top first nine songs on the album are going to be, you know, flying up the charts as singles. How nerdy do you want to get? Cause I can, I agree with what you're saying, but I want to give me the four or five minute version. What, all what right. You so you're right, but it dates back even further than the streaming era, right? Because technically the streaming era in America, there was streaming in the aughts, but Spotify didn't get to America till 2011 and it wasn't baked into the charts. Uh, baked into the Hot 100, I think, until 2012. So really, the streaming era in America is less than still less a little less ten than years. ten years old. And now it it eats it is eating the charts alive. Like I've talked to Billboard about it more than even though they have a sliding ratio depending on volume in a given week. Pretty much every week, more than fifty percent of the points that go into the Hot 100 are streaming. And they uh, tend to be conservative. The people at Billboard, when in their equations, in their methodology, I mean, is it relatively? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, they are. They, they they want a methodology that's sturdy and that works for all markets, and you know that that is credible. Um, no, but. Th- there was no streaming in America for all intents and purposes. There were tiny streaming services like Yahoo Music and whatnot yeah. in like 2007, 2008. And they were baked into the charts, but they were de minimis in, in their impact. Yeah, or you could do Pandora, but you couldn't choose what you were going to listen no, to. No, the so, person yeah. who, who, who disaggregated the album, who turned it to your phrase, which I agree with everything into a single, was Steve Jobs. Because when he negotiated with the labels who were over a barrel in the early aughts when he was launching the iTunes music store in 2003, one negotiating point he insisted on is, nope, everything's going to have the same price. It's going to be 99 cents and every song is downloadable and you're going to get paid for all of them, which is better than your current situation where you guys are trying to replicate Napster, but every song is going to 
going to be available a la carte. And the labels managed to negotiate some little points around, okay, if it's a Big long- Big can be 129 or if, whatever. If a, well, no, they got Longer? to 129 much later. No, it was more like if a song is really long, like a jazz album that only has four tracks, those can't just be 99 cents. Right, okay, that's fair. They, 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 they got some caveats out of jobs in, in their negotiations, but, you know- That makes sense. But- by and large, everything was available. Like the the example I love to give is that when the iTunes Music Store opened for business, you could finally buy Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin as a single, right. something that you had never been able to do dating back to 1971. Right. Fa- right, right. Famously, Stairway to Heaven is probably the most famous non-single. It of wouldn't all have time. fit on a 45 anyway. It would have actually. It's, <laughs> would it? Well, if if Hey Jude by the Beatles, which was something like seven oh six, with all the fit on nah, one nah, side nah, of a forty five, fit on one side of a forty five. They mastered that really tight. They, I'm yeah. sure they did, but no, it did fit on one side. So you, I think you could have fit uh, Stairway to Heaven. I forget how long Stairway is, but I don't think it's longer than I hey mean. Jude. This it's even when you were talking in your, your Springsteen episodes recently mm-hmm. about how you know Bruce hasn't had a number one. He's never had a number one hit yeah. on the Hot 100. Lots That's of a number fluke, one by the records. Way. No, That's a great example albums. to go back to our previous thing. Sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. He has the misfortune of releasing that single the same time as When Doves Cry, one right. of the most epically great singles in Hot 100 history. Right. Which so I've he never, picks a number which two. I've never been a big fan of. Oh, I love When Doves Cry. I know. It's just a weird thing. But Springsteen has had innumerable number one record albums. Number one albums, correct. He's right. he's ranked among so his the, fans go out and they yeah. buy every album he Loyal, puts out. Yes, and he'd had number one albums even before Dancing in the Dark and Born in the USA. Yeah. So so it is interesting that that Drake and Rihanna and whoever else we could name, you know, mm-hmm. have had all these crazy number one albums and number one things, and then somebody like Springsteen, who's been around for fifty years and right has had massive cultural influence. I, I would say. I'd say that's inarguable. Um has never had it. So if somebody comes back a hundred years later, who are they going to think was the more important artist? The person who had 25 number one singles or, you know, happen to have a bunch of number one albums and never had a number one. I'm about to say something that's going to be weird coming from the chart guy. Yeah. But you can't place a hundred percent of your stock in the charts. You just can't even, yeah. I know this. Yeah. And, and the public, and this is something I often tell people, I remind people of this. We often say that's a number one record. It's always going to go down in history as a number one record. Right. But the charts only measure one week at a time. Yeah. So the fact that Springsteen really probably would have had a number one hit, but he had the misfortune to go up against a Duran Duran record, The Reflex, and When Doves Cry by Prince. Those were the two records that blockaded him. It was more Prince because he was about to go to number one, and then Duran Duran fell out and Prince just leapt up to number one. That's just happenstance. It doesn't doesn't take anything away from, oh, you know, Dancing in the Dark is intrinsically only a number two record. No, it just, it was was happenstance. And, you know, the reason I have this gig is I get to explain to people, well, okay, it peaked at number two, and it's not, didn't pick a number two because it quote unquote wasn't good enough. Sure. Picked a number two because he had the misfortune to release at the same summer as one of the most epic singles of all time in Hot 100 history. Well, do you think that the, that that the the purpose of the charts ultimately is to be some sort of arbiter of cultural influence, or is it yes. purely? And if it is, in a, in in one prism, but it can't it can't capture absolutely everything. Yeah, you know, it just can't. And, and even, is there a better way to do it in today's data-driven society just to not have it just be a popularity contest? I mean, so the way we're moving in our data-driven society is to go narrower and say, oh, you know, what's happening on Twitter today? Sure. I I really hope Billboard keeps trying to come up with formulas. They just released a new Twitter-driven ranking of what's most shared on Twitter, like in terms of social media profile. 
that gets updated, I think either daily or multiple times a day. I haven't studied it that closely yet. Um, I just hope they never turn the hot 100 into something that changes more than once a week. I'm, I'm very old school about that because I think once a week that turns out to be a, a decent snapshot. Sure. I don't think you want it to get longer and I don't think you want it to get shorter. Yeah. Um, but it's imperfect. I mean, it just is like, you know, a, a song that um, releases at a weird time or peaks at a weird time might have some of its data captured in one seven day period. And, you know, some of it in another seven day period. I just finished writing about a new Adele song that is number one, but one Wait, is weird that first new track they put out from yeah, the record it's called easy on me now here. Okay. Here's a, here's a fun example. Yeah. Um, the Adele track did not debut at number one. It debuted the week before at number 68 and then leapt to number one. So it's going to go down in chart history as a song that did not debut at number one. It leapt to number one. But the reason it debuted at number 68 is because Adele, okay, follow me here. Adele is a British artist, even though she now lives in LA. She wanted for her British fans for it to release around the world at the same time. And the time she chose was Friday at midnight UK time. That means five hours earlier right. in the United States. So there are five hours in the previous week, basically. Correct. So for five <laughs> hours in the previous chart week, Adele's rabid fan base streamed oh, and played the shit out of Easy On Me. Right. Enough that it, this is the impressive part. It got to number 68 just based on those five hours. Right, right, which right. Which is right, nuts. Right. Yeah. So now people looking at this years later are going to say, huh, interesting. As popular as that Easy On Me track was, it didn't debut at number one, like so many songs did in the the turn of the 20s. Yeah, because it was even more popular than a lot of records that debuted at number one, because with only five hours of data, it debuted at number 68 and then leapt to number one. Right, right. But I have to explain that nuance to people because people are just going to shrug and say, oh, well, it was a big hit, but it didn't debut at number one. It's interesting, though, because I am an Adele fan. I I like Adele. I, I think she has a great voice. I think her, she chooses very good songwriters, right? So a lot of times her I songs mean, at this are, point, she has access to the best yeah, in the business. I don't think that sh- song is particularly strong. No, nobody does. And my piece, which I just put out, uh, this is the other thing I do, by the way, for those who are listening. I not only host the Hit Parade podcast, I write a series for Slate that's been running since 2013 called Why Is This Song Number One? And I, I don't- You say I, this shouldn't be. <laughs> I did. I sometimes say why it shouldn't be. I I'm fine with the fact that Easy on Me is number one, but is it as great as previous? Is it as great as Rolling in the Deep? No. Definitely not. No. Is it as great as someone like you? Definitely. It almost not. sounds like somebody trying to write a parody of an Adele song. Like I'm going to write you an Adele like song. Well, what I did say in the article is that it is Adele 100 percent on brand because here's what she did do. She brought back Greg Kirsten, who's an excellent songwriter. Yeah. Or and certainly a hit-making songwriter. I've liked stuff he's made. I've not liked stuff he's made, but he's a solid songwriter. He co-wrote Hello, which was right. the lead single of the 2015 album, 25. Right, right. And literally, she was replicating everything that happened in 2015. Now, if Adele were sitting here right now, she'd go, oh, fuck you. The, there are 10 things that are different about Easy On Me, the key it's in, the fact that I've <laughs> gone through a divorce and it's about me yeah. talking to my child and why why her father, his father and I had to divorce you know, so it's not about what a hello was about. Fine. Agreed on all fronts. But nonetheless, she worked with the same writer as hello. She brought in the same video director as yeah. hello. And he shot a video that takes place in the same dusty old house that the hello yeah. video took in. You are meant to notice these things. Right. So, you know, my vibe on, on Easy On Me is it's good. It's a fine Adele song. It's not a world beater, but it's yeah. number one because it's Adele and because it's the first track of her new album. 
on her previous album, by the way, uh, most people regard Hello as the great single from that album, and I won't argue hard with them. My favorite single from the previous album was uh, the one she did with Max Martin, Send My Love to Your New Lover, okay. which was this kind of lilting up-tempo thing. Yeah. And it was very unusual for her. It didn't sound like another Adele single. It peaked at number eight, and I th- it was my favorite single from that album. Now, I get why Hello was the big hit, right. but- when I look back fondly on 25, which I think it was an okay middling Adele album, send my love to your love to your new lover is going to be the, the track that I remember. Yeah. But it only peaked at number eight. I mean, I mean, do you, you use the word smash a lot? I do. Does that mean something specific? It doesn't in any technical parlance, but, um, I mostly use it as a, as a fun noun to tell people this, this thing is ubiquitous. Yeah. I think the reason I, use smash is because smash can mean lots of things. It can mean a top 10 hit. It can mean a number one hit. It can mean a hit that, you know, has already achieved radio ubiquity. I remember reading an interview with, of all people, Cisco of thong song. Sure. And when he wrote thong song, he was telling his record company, see, that's a hit, but that's a smash. He actually had a definition in his head. Oh, interesting. A, a Potter Stewart on pornography. I know it when I hear it. Sure. Kind of definition. He's like, yeah, that song went to number one, and that's a hit, but this is a smash. Yeah. And by the way, Thong Song so only smash went- might actually only get to number three. Which right? it did, by the way. The Thong Song got to number three. Okay. You, I don't know if you knew that off the I top didn't, of your head. I didn't. I, yeah, but I- So there is- an, And actually, is, oh, here's an even better thing. Uh, Cisco had a number one hit. Do you remember it? No. Nobody does. It was uh, the follow-up to Thong Song, a ballad called Incomplete. And, and that will go down in history as his Hot 100 number one. Now, there are technical reasons for that. He released Incomplete as a, uh, not a 45, because this is 2000, so we were out of the year, the year of vinyl at the time. Ooh. Right. But um, but he released it as a CD single, where he's whereas he didn't release, the, and when I say he, it was the record label, didn't release Thong Song as a single. Ergo, it had to climb the chart on Airplay alone, and it got to number three, which is very impressive. But obviously, if people remember Cisco at all, they're only going to remember Thong Song. They're not going to remember Incomplete. Sure. But Incomplete is his number one hit. You know, so like... It, similar to the Adele thing, this song jumping to number one. If she was an unknown artist, this song is not strong enough to jump to number one. Correct. It's all just... Oh even God, with her pipes. Record. Even with her pipes, as impressive as her vo- voice yeah, is. Man, she's got a voice, that woman. She's got a voice. She's, yeah. a, she's amazing, but... Yeah, no, if she's unknown, that song doesn't debut or leap from number 68 to number one. It's it's so fascinating. You know, this last year, I, I we were talking before we started about the fact that I'm an audio nerd. And, you know, and I have fancy speakers and I've got fancy amps and I've got fancy headphones and I actually enjoy right. audio quality. Um, in the last four or five months, I've, I've been playing with Apple Music because it comes with a thing that we, you know, we, we, and specifically Apple music, not iTunes, the uh, streaming service, the streaming service. Okay. And mostly because in the last two months they've gone lossless. There are, mm. if you want to listen to Sergeant Pepper, there are three different versions. There's, you know, the remixes they've just done. There's the remaster from Oh nine or whatever it was. Right. You know what I mean? Like they're right. the, you the can, various Giles Martin versions. <clears throat> yeah. The thing is, is that I have up on that shelf up there, you know, envelopes full of CDs. Mm-hmm. Now I didn't keep the jewel cases. I didn't keep the back pan paper, but I kept the CDs and the, and the booklets and the booklets. Sure. I've ripped most of those lossless. I didn't, wasn't into streaming because I wanted to actually hear it in the best quality possible. Mm-hmm. Now often the best quality possible is actually better on streaming because it's might be 24 bit. You know what I mean? Like it might actually be a better 
version than I have on CD. It might oh, be a more recent remaster. And I, knowing what I know about you and audiophilia, I trust you on that because yeah. I have not, I've not done that experiment. That's very interesting. And so it's interesting to me that like, why do I have those still? So, and, and I have a, and few, I have a whole wall of CDs in yeah. my, in my and, apartment and, right you know, now. Years ago, when I was still at Berkeley, Greg Calby, who's a famous, uh, mastering engineer at Sterling Sound came in. And one of the things he brought, and this was 98. So this is a long time ago mm. that he had worked on the most recent McCartney record and he McCartney really liked the way it sounded. And he says, he called him up and he said, do you mind giving pepper a shot? And he's like, what? And he's like, I want you to remaster Sergeant Pepper. And he's like, okay. So they shipped over the final master tape of Sergeant Pepper <laughs> oh and God. shipped over the tape deck. It was originally recorded on. Oh my God. What year was this? 1997, 98. Holy cow. And they cleaned up the tape deck and they replayed the original tape and they had a remastered version that never saw the light of day. And why? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't mean, know. Weird why, why does anything stuff. happen I, I, yeah, in, in Beetle World? Yeah, exactly. And uh, he, at the time, he played a few of these remastered versions, comparing them to the old CDs from 85, Seven. 87. 87. I've, that I know cold. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, and obviously it was night and day because like those original masters were not that great. This one was excellent. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so anyway, a few years go by and I was in New York and I went over and hung out with him at Sterling Sound one day. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whatever happened to that? version of Sergeant Pepper. And he's like, oh, they never released it for, you know, political reasons, blah, blah, blah. He goes, you want one? And he goes over and he flips through and he hands me a CDR. Oh my God. And I still have it. Okay. And know somebody like you. Is it amazing? It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Is it better than I the Giles Martin remaster? I think it's, I think it's better than the 2009 remaster. I think it's better than the, the 17. Yeah. I mean, it's the original mix, but like a really good remaster of the original mix. I'll get your copy. Don't worry. I was going to say, should I say this off mic? I want a copy of that. <laughs> or I'll I play it for you. But here's the thing. Like I've I, played Sergeant Pepper more than any album in my life. Probably. Exactly. And I have that, which probably a dozen people in the world actually have. That's amazing. And for a Beatle fan like yourself. Yes. That is like literally gold, right? No, the whole time you were telling that story, the, the podcaster listeners can't see this. I was like holding my face in my yeah. hands, like in total shock. Right. So like, I was in shock that they shipped him the original tapes. Like, I hope they did that with a, a Brinks truck or something. They actually like, had, it was, a, as he described it, it was, they got multiple first class seats and they put the tapes on the seat and buckled them in. Wow. And carried them over. That, I'm, and just, I'm he, shivering. Interestingly enough, he op British are very serious about their studio stuff so that when you open up a studio uh, tape in the uk there's actually sort of a library card of like when was this last played and whatever it is and the last time it was played was 1987 for that or 86 for that original remaster yeah so this, you know 15 12 years later he's the next guy even playing this tape <sighs> that's in a much better blowing. way mind-blowing so okay but here's the thing yes the 2009 remasters came out yes they sound pretty darn good you know the mono and the stereo one you know they sounded great but I have this weird rare thing. I'm going to keep that CD. I'm not getting rid of that. Mm. But do I need every copy of every Elvis Costello record I have? Do I need every, you know what I mean? I have these physical things. I guess my question to you is, do you collect physical media anymore? Or have you given up on that? Um, I do some. Okay. Well, there's a lot of ways to answer this question. Here's what makes me weird and anomalous. I still prefer the CD to vinyl. And I know that makes me a weirdo. No, I think CDs, well-mastered CDs on a good CD player sound really darn good. Yeah, 
I just, well, my, my take on the whole vinyl revival, besides the fact that they've hoodwinked us into paying, you know, between 25 and $40 for something that can be had on CD for 10 bucks, right. where the CD used to be more expensive than the LP right. and that the LP sounded like crap 40 years ago. Right. It really did. Um, we had a version of this conversation the last time I was on your show, by the way. Um, my thing about the vinyl thing is that to really achieve that amazing audio, you need some pretty high quality equipment. Yeah. Whereas like I could go buy a drugstore CD player right now yeah. and it would sound pretty, it wouldn't sound amazing, but it yeah. would sound really, really good, really yeah. clean. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of my raises thing about the floor, uh, as it were, it raises <laughs> the floor. Well put. Yeah. Um, and I, so I have not gotten into the vinyl revival. And so all of the, the energy and action in physical goods collection in music now is in vinyl. Right. Um, except for these Beatles reissues, I've gotten all of those Beatles reissues, except the let it be one. I'm still just trying to decide if I want to plunk down for that. Right. Uh, but I've gotten the reissues on CD of Sgt. Pepper, Abbey Road, white album. The white album is secretly probably the best of that lot, by the way. Um, and, but you're not picking up the new Adele record on CD. You'll just listen to a stream of it. That's a good question. Probably not. Yeah. Probably not. And that's even evolving over the last five years because I was still stubbornly getting CDs of certain albums I loved as recently as 2017, 2018. And now lately I'm doing that less and less. Would you actually listen to them or would it just be like, I feel like I should get this to support the artist and this is what I've always done, but then you end up listening to it on streaming or something anyway. Uh, well, no, what I was doing also was I was getting the CD and just ripping it immediately and putting it on a shelf. Right. And I was thinking, I'm starting to think, what's the point of this? Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm holding, I'm, stubbornly as a middle-aged man holding on to a, a, a model that doesn't accord with how people listen. Anymore. This is exactly the way I feel. I, there's a, there's a song called pretending to care, uh, Todd Rundgren on his acapella album. Oh, I, how weird I was because of his rock hall induction and all the stuff I've been listening to. I just listened to the acapella album last week yeah. in full for the first time. And I wanted to remind myself of his hit single, something to fall back on. It wasn't a hit actually, but it was a single. And it was, I think the first Todd Rundgren song I ever heard because I happened to catch it on MTV in like 1985. You don't and think I, you heard uh, Hello, I, It's Me or something? I probably heard Hello, It's Me out in the world, but yeah. didn't register that something, it was Something, anything Rundgren. is still also a very and, good record. Yeah, no, it's, right. And I probably also heard Bang on the Drum all day. Sure. Out in the world. And I don't think I figured out that that was Todd Rundgren until sometime in the 2000s. So right. like- I'm sure I heard other Todd Rundgren songs, but this was the first Todd Rundgren song I knew was a Todd Rundgren song when I was 13 years old. Yeah. And, uh, and so out of a bit of nostalgia, I put on the acapella album because I never listened to the whole album and I hadn't heard something to fall back on for, I don't know, for 30, 40 years. Yeah. Not 40, but you know. And, and years ago I was photographing Jonathan Brooke, the singer songwriter. Oh yeah. And, and she was, I was like, what are you working on? She's like, Oh, I'm going on some radio show. Next weekend, I've decided to sing this weird Tom Rundgren song, Pretending to Care. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I, he, she's like, have you ever heard this song? I was like, I don't think I know it. And she's like, oh, man, you're going to, like, cue it up. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. So I got the record, and I, it's an amazing song. His performance is great. You know, it's, it's Todd Rundgren. When Todd Rundgren's firing on all cylinders. It's amazing. He's amazing. And But the cool thing I could do on streaming was, who else has covered this song? Mm. And instantly, I can listen to six different versions. Right. By random people. And that's the kind of thing you can't do 
easily. In the old physical goods era. Yeah. No, you really can't. And it, I was sitting here, I was working on some pictures. I was retouching some stuff and I was like, just clicking through all the different versions of this song and listening to them. It's like, there is a certain power in that, that I, especially now that everything's lossless. And so I can negate that argument. Right. Yeah. No, I have to say if an audiophile like you is saying that you're now considering streaming to be good enough. Yeah. I'm impressed because that for a long time was the last argument against going all streaming all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, yeah. And even my stereo now, what I do is I stream to, I have a little Raspberry Pi, you know, those like little $30 computer boards you can buy. I, I don't, don't know if you, but okay. okay. They make these little things called Raspberry Pis. They're like a $30 computer board. What a fun name. And yeah. And you can buy a DAC card that clicks onto it and it uh-huh. goes in a little box. It's actually right behind you on the, on the, on the amp directly behind you. And that is my entire stereo now is that little box plugged into that giant amp. Oops. Sorry. You know? Which is just nuts to me because I use I have, you know, preamps and CD players and DACs and all this stuff in the closet, and I'm streaming into a little thing that's that big. I see. They call it a raspberry because it kind of looks like a berry. This oh, thing? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no that, that box right behind it. Oh, that box? Yeah. This is not that, the that's, a, that's the volume control. Oh, that's the volume control. Okay. And it's just, but it's like, it's, it's a nothing system. Like, I would never think I'd just be using some, and it costs $120 total. Wow. Right. I've spent thousands of dollars on gear that's in the closet. I don't know. Just the world is moving on. And I wonder if, you know, you say 1971, a lot of people say is the best year of all time. You did a a double episode. You said 84. Well, that reflects my bias toward, first of all, my age, because everybody thinks the music that came out when they were teenagers, the best music ever. And second, because it has been ratified, including by my friend Michelangelo Matos, who recently wrote a book about the music of 1984 called Can't Slow Down. Um, it's been ratified by lots of critics as like a great, great, great year for pop and the pop single. And the fact that I'm such a pop single fan. Right. 84 is just a killer year. Right. Okay. So my question is. 71's great, mostly because it's a great album year. It's also a great single year, but the music charts- changed a little bit in 71. It feels like it feels like the beginning of a new era somehow. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the, my thesis Ultimately, when I did the 71 episode, and just to reveal my bias, the real reason I did it was because I was turning 50 that month. I caught that. And it was, it was you know, the 50th uh, episode of Hit Parade. I was turning 50, and I, I wanted to key into all of this 50th anniversary nostalgia for 1971 that was going around, including an Apple TV Plus documentary series yeah. just on the music of 1971. Which I haven't watched. Is it good? It's, it's very good. Uh some of the footage they found is amazing. Okay. Some episodes, I'm hesitating because some episodes are better than others. I'm not going to say it's going to change your life, but like some of the footage they found is fantastic. Yeah. And, 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 and they did an interesting approach where they don't have um, a lot of, they don't have a voiceover or a lot of talking heads. They kind of let a lot of the footage speak for itself. It's a little bit like the new velvet underground documentary by yeah. um, what's his name? Um, Todd Haynes. Okay in that Todd Haynes also doesn't have, um, you know, uh, a voiceover or a lot of talking heads. And this 1971 documentary is like a less artsy version of that. Interesting. Um, but anyway, uh, my thesis that I, where I ultimately came out doing this episode was that it's as if all the stuff that people brag about in the sixties really came to full flower in the seventies. You know, the, the, I'm sure it was groovy and a load of fun to be alive and a teenager in the 60s. But really, in terms of the art, you know, there were great albums in the 60s and there were OK albums in the 60s and there were embarrassing albums in the 60s. But what made 71 so great is it's like 
all of this stuff that had been marinating for the prior decade all came to fruition. And so you have a guy like Rod Stewart who would never record an album as great as Every Picture Tells a Story Again. He'd picked up his love of soul and his love of folk and his love of, you know, British pop music and all of that and put it all into one record. And that's why Every Picture Tells a Story is great is because everything he'd been thinking about in the 60s came to fruition in 71. Or Carole King. Carole King you know, this, in a way, Carol King is like an amalgam of everything that happened in the 60s in that, in the first half of the decade, right through the end, but mostly in the first half of the decade, she's recording girl group pop with, you know, songs that she's writing with her then husband, Jerry Goffin. Right. So she knows how to write a hit. Then she goes to Laurel Canyon in the late 60s and keys into that whole scene, that, that you know, singer songwriter movement. And she fuses the two together and does Tapestry, which is a super pop, pop, pop album and yet feels like a Laurel Canyon album, like yeah. a Joni Mitchell album yep. at the same time. So that's that's her fusing a whole bunch of 60s stuff. And which, by the way, still a great album. You listen to it, you're Tapestry, like, it's, it's, it's freaking it's, amazing. Yeah. Amazing album. Yeah, no, just, and it's like all killer, no filler. Like every, almost every track on it sounds like a hit. Yeah. Um, even the deep cuts like Smackwater Jack doesn't sound like a hit. And yet Quincy Jones recorded it and put it out as a single. And like, I, you know, I was surprised because how short of a career, of a career slides bounce what? I mean, it, was, it wasn't very, yeah. It was not very long. Not at all. And yet. Two, three years that he actually was making all the stuff everyone remembers about him. Right. And there again, Sly, you know, he'll be remembered as kind of the Woodstock hippie dude, but his, you know, most acclaimed album, There's a Riot Going On, is this dark funk, you know, sort of woozy album Sure, that, again, is sort of building on everything he'd done in the four to five years prior. Yeah. You know, and and if it had been up to Columbia Records, his label, no, excuse me, Epic Records, different, but part of the same yeah, CBS. CBS family. Yeah. If it had been up to Epic Records, he would have released three or four albums in the span between, what was the 68, 69 album, Stand? Yeah. And, um, you know, instead he's dropping an occasional single and each and every one of them is scaling the charts. Like uh, Hot Fun in the Summertime is the number people two. People were hungry for it. Anything he put out. They, they really, you can almost... Um, but that's also what destroyed him sort of personally. I think yes. he thought he was unstoppable, which probably led to his crazy drug addictions and yes. stuff. So, I mean, it also led to his downfall, the fact yeah. that the people wanted it so badly. Yeah. No, and he was at... He was in a real, what I often call an imperial period, where sure. anything he did, touched turned to gold. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if he had released more albums, they probably would have been number one hits too. But do, you, he, do you think in 10 or 15 years, somebody in your position will name 1997 or 2006 as the greatest year in, in pop history? I suspect it might happen. Um, my favorite year of the 2010s was 2012. I really liked that year. I thought it was a really good year for pop, the pop single. That was the year of um, Call Me Maybe uh, by Carly Rae yeah. Jepsen and somebody that I used to also know. Also a really Kogier. catchy song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and some good albums came out that year. Uh, the Miguel album came out that year. So like um, Kaleidoscope Dreams. So like uh, there, people are all going to have favorite years and – I can't predict being a middle-aged guy what people are going to regard as the pivot point yet. Although I'm being a chart analyst and a pop critic, I'm still going to try to, you know, sort of analyze it and bring something interesting to it. Yeah. You know, like at the very least I can observe that as I did in this Adele piece I just wrote that the moment she went off the grid 
after her last album, which came out in 2015, she missed a pretty pivotal five years. Smartly, she avoided the Trump years entirely. So good move, Adele. But she also, (laughs) she literally like recorded an album before Trump was- And just waited. Waited till that bastard was out of office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of don't blame her. But um, because who knows what he would have said about her. Right. But um, she also skipped like a five-year period where basically streaming eight- the industry yep. streaming was on the charts as early as 2012, but streaming really overtook everything overtook the download overtook, you know, yeah. every other source of profit, you know, even album sales, um, as much more, it is still more profitable for the industry if you buy something physically, but that's now a fraction of what it was five years ago. Yeah. Um, and so, I'm still going to be able at my advanced age (laughs) to analyze these pivot points in the industry. But yeah, you're right that it's going to take probably somebody younger than me realizing that, you know, this year was pivotal. Um, Although, you know, it's funny coming out of the, um, the 1971 episode, which was again, my 50th episode, it was my September episode of hit parade. It came out on my 50th birthday. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to prove I could, do a topic that was quote younger immediately after. So for our 51st episode, which came out in mid October, I did an episode that pivoted around the early aughts and pop punk and emo. You know what? It's funny. You're sliding into my next question. Yeah. And, and I have, I have so many millennials and I can't tell if they're Gen Z's, but they're, you know, they're certainly much younger than me. People tweeting appreciation and thanks at me because I was able to- You're talking about their era. I was talking about their era and I was able to identify there are are pivot points in pop punk and emo. 2006 is a big year for emo in particular. Emo as a pop force where it had been bubbling up for five or six years before that, but then Fall Out Boy have their biggest hits. Panic at the Disco wins the Video of the Year prize at the MTV Video Music Awards. Um, My Chemical Romance comes back with an album that tops the charts uh, and tops the modern rock chart for like two months and goes top 10 on the the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, Paramore, you know, I think they release Riot either in late 06 or early 07. So like I'm at least keyed in enough to know that for a generation of this kind of rock, 06 is a pivot year. So this is a very long way of answering your question, but like, am I still able to like, look and identify pivot moments. Yeah. Yeah. I can't. Do you, Sometimes do you notice you them pers- at the moment or do you notice them after the fact? I, this is my question. Like even your stuff a little about of both. Yeah. About punk and emo. It's just like, are we looking back and seeing the same, I don't know, rise and fall, the same bell curve that we were talking about with the power ballads in the eighties mm-hmm. where, yeah, it was happening. Do we know how high it's going to go? Do we know when it's going to go away? No, not really. Yeah. You know, do people even realize it in the moment or is that all stuff that's done in hindsight? I mean, the answer to all your questions is yes. Like, yes, you can notice certain things happening in the moment, but often you need perspective to know that it turns out don't stop believing is journey's great song. Yeah. You know, you need, you need the long term to figure that out. Um, like I just said, the 2012 is my favorite year of the 2010s, but I don't hear that many more other people ratifying that. And I hear many more people saying that, well, 2015 is more pivotal because that's the moment when streaming takes over and Drake starts scoring number one hits in 2016 and yeah. the SoundCloud rap thing starts taking over. So like I could see that happening at the time, but it, it wasn't entirely clear to me 
until later that that's actually a more significant pivot point. So sometimes you do need time. There's something also that I've noticed in something you were saying in one of the shows, and then I was reading up on it, and SoundScan started when? 91. Okay. So before 91, Mm -hmm. what was number one in the charts might not have even been that week. It could have been two weeks before, because there seems like there was a data delay there's still a data lag for the record. Like there, there always will be like it, billboard has to capture data on a certain schedule and then publish it. Yeah. And even though they've, they rely less and less on their physical print magazine, they still do put out a print magazine, uh, on a much, but back in the day it was almost Nielsen esque. Like they were sampling as much as they were. Do, getting- yes. That's a good way of putting it. It was Nielsen esque. Correct. Right. Except and it was a different methodology because with Nielsen, Nielsen's was closer for television, yep. was closer to science in the sense that you don't survey a million people to know what a million people think. You survey uh, 1,500 you know, 1, people, right. people and there's a statistic. And of yep. course, we now know with political polling, that's getting less reliable for all sorts of extraneous sure. reasons. But in theory, if statistics works, you only have to sample a couple thousand people yep. to get a broader sense of how a million people think. And that's how Nielsen worked. You you pick Nielsen families that represent sort of a demographic, the demographic center of the country. And then you- But the sales numbers that Billboard was getting back in the day were coming from stores, were they not? They were, but they, the sales numbers, first of all, not only were they fudgeable and corruptible, even if you take the corruption out of the equation, they weren't getting absolute peace counts. You weren't knowing. So there are number one hits. I like to say there are number one hits and there are number one hits. There's the week where the number one album sold 100,000 copies and there's a week when the number one album sold a million copies. Right. They're both number one albums, but you know, Michael Jackson's bad to go back to the 80s had a bigger opening week than say- I don't know, a Steve Winwood album did, you sure. know, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that yeah. topped the charts. Yeah. So there, there are differences, but we didn't have that data back then. We didn't have peace counts because the whole reason SoundScan in 1991 was a big deal was that beep, every time beep, the UPC barcode beep was going across the cash register. You were actually tallying down to the single count how many CDs something was selling. Yeah. That, that, that changed everything. And it, that, that's what I like to point out when they folks- even had a little me, logo on the charts about it, didn't they? Did, wasn't there a SoundScan yeah, there logo? Yeah, there was a SoundScan logo that they added to the charts <laughs> back that. then. And SoundScan has changed hands multiple times. It's not even SoundScan anymore. It's called MRC Data. Okay. It was Nielsen SoundScan for a long time because Nielsen, the TV people, bought oh, SoundScan. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. It was Nielsen SoundScan for several decades. Then it got- folded into various mergers involving Billboard, and now it's part of MRC data. And MRC now owns Rolling Stone and Billboard and lots of other things. Where where, where do where does the decline of radio fit into all of this? That's another one that, frankly, has been bedeviling me in this, um, in what I do. Uh, because it's funny, we all hate radio. We hate it for reasons that everybody hates it. They play the same songs over and over again. Sure. They research things to death. Uh, they've reduced certain artists down to like two songs, right? It's like yep. Van Morrison's whole catalog is Brown Eyed Girl at this point. If right. you're almost, not, or that plus maybe Moondance, you're not going to hear anything else on the radio by Van Morrison. Um, <clears throat> so fine, I I can, you know, present the litany of sins that radio has propagated. On the other hand, what's useful about radio, I call radio the truth serum of hit making because, because it's so researched and because they know what you actually want to hear, they know over the long term that 
Don't Stop Believing is the journey hit, not right. Open Arms, because they they have the research on it. And on the charts, it's because radio ratings are way down and COVID really did a number on them. Like less you people could, in cars, less people doing few, XM, correct. let alone terrestrial radio. Right. Terrestrial radio really took a hit. Um, as a result, radio has less influence on hit songs now. They're playing hits longer. So the reason The weekend's Blinding Lights set a record for most weeks in the history of the chart was mostly because radio just wouldn't stop playing it right. because it was, it was reliable. Um, Levitating by Dua Lipa right now is, is about to break some records because it's been in the, it lodged in the top 10 longer than any record, except for blinding lights. It's probably not going to be blinding lights, but it's going to wind up the all time number two. Um, And it's frustrating me also because radio is having less of an impact on the hot 100 than it used to week by week. So for example, the song of the summer this year in 2021 was a song officially going by the chart data, according mm-hmm. to billboard was butter by BTS. Okay. Butter never got higher on the radio songs part of the hot 100, the radio songs chart, which feeds into the hot 100, the number 20. So kids were listening to it, but radio wasn't playing it. Yeah. And when you say kids, a very specific cross section of kids, right? Like my my teenage stepkids don't even like butter very much. Wait, they had a tune called Dynamite too. Dynamite was a big. That hit. was a great song. That was a great song and a, a quite legitimate hit. Cute actually, video, like the whole thing. That whole even thing that was only up barely there. cracked the top ten. And some people would say that's because of racism of radio programmers that yeah, they don't want to play. Sure, and they they have a point because um, Dynamite was a fantastic song. Great it deserved song. It deserved to do even better at the, on the radio than it did. But it was a top ten radio record and a number one hit. But no, what's ha- the reason Butter was the dominant song of the summer? was because BTS fans were just buying the crap out of it at digital retailers. And they would buy every version, every remix. Yep. And so even though this record was not getting played a lot, Butter will go down in history as a, I think it was nine or 10 week number one and the song of the summer of 2021, even though it's a fine BTS record. It's not their best. It's not as good as Dynamite. Yep. And it wasn't all that ubiquitous. But Whereas in- if you were out in the world this summer, you heard Levitating by Dua Lipa. You heard Good For You by Olivia Rodrigo. These were the hits that were really penetrating the culture, but none of them was number one or number one as long. Olivia Rodrigo only had one week at number one with Good For You. Yeah. Um, Dua Lipa peaked at number two with Levitating. Sure. Levitating, like Dancing in the Dark by Bruce Springsteen, will go down in chart history as a number two hit, even though it really, really deserved to be a number one hit, given how ubiquitous it is and how good it is. So- Radio is an important factor because it ratifies hits and it's conservative. Yes. And it's, it's frustratingly slow to pick up on records. Yes. But. Or do you just feel that way because of your age and what radio meant when we were younger? Some of that, some of it is my nostalgia for an old model. You're absolutely right about that. But no, part of it is for the hot 100 to work as well as it does. And the reason why I write about the hot 100 and focus on the hot 100 is because it is an average of what I call passive fandom and active fandom. Okay. This is something I, I truly believe. Dating back to the, you know, beginning the dawn of the charts in the rock era, an Elvis single would would sell really well out of the box. A Beatles single would sell really well out of the box. But you also wanted to measure how the less rabid fan was consuming those songs. Like eventually um, a Beatles single will get through to your parents as well as the 15-year-old who buys it on the first day. Right. And now that 
because everything moved slower back in the days of Elvis and the Beatles, it took weeks for that to get ratified on the charts anyway. Now that we have digital everything and we can actually measure things literally by the minute, BTS fans storming in to buy a new BTS single gets measured right away on the charts and that song debuts at number one. Right. Even though Butter is a, you know, it's like a five or a six among pop songs. It's okay. It's not phenomenal. It's not terrible. It's fine. Um, But you want to measure like, is it penetrating with not just my mom, not just my middle-aged ass, but even like my teenage stepkids who are not big BTS fans, when do they notice butter? Right, right. And, and decide that, eh, they're not that crazy. And about where it. are they finding out about it? Right. From their I mean, friends, from TikTok. Yeah. Like, By the way, I, I don't think I said the words tick and talk the last time I sat in this chair, which was no, the summer it didn't of 2018. Exist, probably. It existed, but it had not become the phenomenon it is. And right. now TikTok is driving a lot of hits. Um, so you know, TikTok has, TikTok does not, data does not factor directly into the charts, but it has a massive knock-on effect where something that hits at TikTok will stream more on Spotify. Sure. And eventually radio might start playing. Famously uh, Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Dreams <laughs> came Coming back. out of nowhere. Dreams to- went back on the Hot 100 because yeah. of TikTok. Yeah. And uh, again, not directly because of TikTok, because again, that TikTok data did not count, but anybody who then went and streamed the song, bought the song, that all counts. You know, what's interesting is that even when you're listing off all of the big artists currently, right? how much of a demographic shift has happened in the last 40 years, right? I mean, the charts were very heavily tilted white in the eighties. I mean, there were, you know, yes. you had Michael Jackson and you had Prince, but like, those were the anomalies. They, they were like the, 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 uh, extra condiments on top of like these huge giant, big, massive, like white artists at the time. Yeah. 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 No, I, I hear to the point that we this. had, you know, R and B charts, I guess was what it was called back in that day. Right. Right. What is it called now? Hot R and B urban songs. chart. What do they call it? Is well, no urban urban is a, is a term of art that's been used in the radio industry for a long time. And frankly, after George Floyd, a lot of people in the industry said we should get rid of this change. Term of course, but because I, it's, it's kind of like a, you know, but it's interesting that word it's, 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 it's a dated term, but looking at the hot 100, it's probably, you know, over 50, 60, 70% minority artists, which is great, you know, like share the diversity, but like, right. Do you think that that is due to demographic shifts in America or do you think it's due to we're measuring it differently because we have less racist ways of, 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 of seeing how these, this music imports in society. Both. The answer is both. And I would even tilt toward the better data because what you noticed, I've told this story many a time in 1991, the minute that Billboard flips the switch on SoundScan, which is now, you know, that was considered hot cutting edge technology in yeah, 30 years ago, 30 years ago. It wasn't even measuring things up to the minute, but it was measuring things far better. Immediately wrapped it better. NWA yeah. had a number one album within a month or two yeah. of yeah. SoundScan coming online. It's impossible to imagine Baby Got Back by Sir Mix-a-Lot spending a month at number one in the summer of 1992 if they hadn't converted the Hot 100 to accurate airplay and accurate sales. Yeah. So it turns out better data reveals So how that, are they missing it, though? This is the part I don't get. Well, okay, let me go back to the thing where you were asking me before about what kind of data they had before SoundScan. So let's look at um, 1989 and Tone Loke's Wild Thing. Sure. Tone Loke's Wild Thing should have been a number one record. It, it peaked at number two. And the reason it peaked at number two was because on the sales side, right, the Hot 100 back then measured two things. Now it measures three things, including streaming. But throughout its history, it has always measured at least two things, sales and airplay, right? 
airplay, there were some radio stations that felt that they didn't want to play a rap record or they felt that that record was too saucy, ribald yep. for them. So I think it only peaked at radio at number five or six. Okay. However, in sales, uh, Wild Thing was crushing everything on the car- the charts. It, it, I, I can't remember where I read this, but it was selling more than like the rest of the top 10 and possibly the top 20 combined. Yeah. Based on that data, yeah. Wild Thing should have been a massive number one record. Yeah. It should have been number one for months. But the radio play was the radio weighted play, too highly. W- n- weighted no, too heavily. No, the sales data was not piece counts. It oh, was just okay. rankings. Oh, so okay. even if all the retailers are telling you, and, and it did go to number one on the sales side, but they don't tell you just how big it is. Because yeah. as again, to repeat something it's I said a while ago, it's all relative. They're number one hits and they're number one hits. Yeah. Like there, there's a week where a Whitney Houston song is the, to take race out of the equation, yeah. a Whitney Houston song is number one, but it's selling, you know, 20,000 copies or 50,000 copies. And then yeah. there's the week that Tone Loke is like shifting a hundred thousand copies a week, but we, we didn't have that. And I'm, by the way, I'm making these numbers up. I don't know yeah, what yeah, Tone yeah, Loke yeah, was yeah, selling, yeah. but clearly based on the buzz in the industry back then, if there had been a chart that was actually counting how many copies Wild Thing was selling, Wild Thing would have been a number one hit easily because his slightly weaker airplay would have been wildly counterbalanced. Do the math in your head by the, you know, massive sales that it was doing. Yeah. And that's now how the charts work. So the fact that Drake goes to number one to bring it right up to the present day with way too sexy, it's mostly because radio wasn't even playing way too sexy all that much or BTS. Um, you know, the fact that butter debuted at number one was because the, the rabid fans were buying and streaming the hell out of it. And radio wasn't playing it all that much at all, but because those sales were so ridiculously high, it, it, was able to debut on the hot 100, a chart that's supposed to measure three things, but it's like it could do it with one hand tied behind its back because sure. it didn't matter that it's radio numbers were anemic. It's sales numbers were off the charts. Did, pardon, did, the, pardon the pun. Did rumors get back on the album chart because of the TikTok stuff? It did. What's weird about the album chart now is that the main flagship album chart measures streaming. So anybody who streamed the bejesus out of dreams, but didn't play any other tracks from rumors that would have improved rumors oh, on, that's the, interesting. on the album chart. Yes. Which is something that didn't exist as recently as six years ago. It's interesting because back in the day, how many albums were on the album chart forever? Well, you know, and, and they still are, you know, you know Ego's uh, greatest hits and Ego's dark side hits, and all that crap. Yeah. Led I mean, Zeppelin four, yeah. Bob Marley legend. Yeah. These, these records still sell week after week after week. Metallica's the black album. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine how much money Metallica's making from a record they came out in 91 when the yeah. album came out. It's the most certified album in um, the SoundScan era. Really? It has sold the pure old fashioned way, not with streams. Yeah. It sold something like 16 or 17 million copies. <laughs> like these are Led Zeppelin numbers. These are Beatles numbers. If you, if you didn't know the, the the pandemic happened, could you tell in the charts that something changed in the last year and a half? Oh, that's an interesting question. Possibly, but it, I, yeah, it would be hard to tell because the charts go on and, you know, I wouldn't say that, um, frankly, I think George Floyd had more of an impact because you saw, you know, protest records like, uh, the bigger picture by a uh, little baby right. hitting the top five, um, as a result of that. 
that's easier to tell than the pandemic. I was able to to go in reverse. I was able to say to people, well, Blinding Lights is doing especially well during the pandemic because it's a mass appeal hit that right. appeals to people who are locked down with their parents and grandparents. Yeah. You know, it's, it's nostalgic because it sounds like the 80s for, you know, boomers and Gen Xers. And it's TikTokable, so it works for Gen Z. You and know. isn't it interesting that all of that you know, you could look back all the way to the message and you could look back to Sly's record in the seventies, you know, mm-hmm. and say only in hindsight, do you actually look back and like how long this protest music, even in say black America, right. Has, has like goes back yeah, and has, be- has become this thing that's just like built and built and built mm-hmm. and gotten bigger, man. Yeah. I can see how you get obsessed with the charts. Yeah. Because even the, I'm sitting here and all these questions you're asking me talking about all the ways in which they are flawed. And I know that they're flawed. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't pretend they're the be it's all It's a blurry all, picture. But the blurry picture is what's interesting because you can, you can see all of these, these trends, you know, rising and falling and, yeah. and infusing the charts and the backstories that lead to things being hits. That's, that's what makes my job interesting. All right. So here's, here's, here's my last kind of question. This is more of a music fan question. Sure. Sometimes I'll listen to, or I'll read on say an all music review of, I don't know, 52nd street by Billy Joel. And they'll say, you know, and then this song, it's just like this reggae infused, you know, a little ditty or whatever. But I used to be a really big, still am a really big Billy Joel fan. Mm-hmm. And to me, that album, I don't even hear it as a reggae infused, whatever it is. It is whatever I hear it as, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's Billy Joel's 52nd Street record. Are there ever, do you ever read music reviews and somebody sort of distills or simplifies something down to the point where... It almost not makes you angry, but you go, you didn't get it at all. That's the record is so much more than the beat that, that is underneath it. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely get that reaction, uh, from time to time. Um, it depends. I'm always considering the critic and where they're coming from. Okay. And now that I am, you know, friends with a lot of critics and, or even if I'm not friends with them, I, sort of know where they're coming from in terms of their herb as critics. Yep. I, I, frankly, I get, I get annoyed with movie critics more often than I get annoyed with music critics not to take it out of the realm of music yeah. because I can usually make up my own mind about music. And I sort of know that say a Craig Jenkins brings this to a review, but an Ann Powers brings that to a review. Um, I'm generally with music. I'm looking for smart takes, even when I disagree. Um, one of my very dear friends is, um, he's a professor in Miami and he writes for various publications, including Pitchfork is my friend, Alfred Soto. And Alfred is a, a much tougher critic than I am. And I sometimes get annoyed with Alfred, like, oh, you're dismissing blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But Alfred's such a good writer and such a smart thinker about music that I always read what he has to say, because even when I virulently disagree with him, um, I'm, I'm looking for sort of the, the interesting thoughts about the record. You know, I hear you though, that when reviews get reductive, you know, sometimes you're like, okay, but if all you're hearing is the antecedents, you're missing why this record's great. Yeah. Um, I can't remember when I had this conversation, but I I, I may do that as an old person listening to some hit now. And I'm just like, well, that's just a rehash of synth pop from the eighties or whatever. Right. Right. I I may be doing the same thing, so I'm not immune to it. Well, and I've, I've been doing this long enough that I've realized that everybody's going to be cynical about something at some point. For example, 
I find that the pop music, just to talk pure pop, sure. chart pop, that I'm most cynical about tends to be the stuff that came out was when I was in college. Okay. I really don't like the sound of sort of like turn of the 90s, adult contemporaries, you know, synthy pop. I, I hate uh, Bette Midler's version of Wind Beneath My Wings. Sure. I hate Wilson Phillips. I don't like, I don't really care for Baby Baby by Amy Grant. Right. And there, there are younger critics than me who think Heart and Motion by Amy Grant is like a pivotal record and a, really? great, a great record. Yeah. And see, that's fascinating to me because I'm the grump on that record. Sure. There, there's actually one single on that record that I really liked. Uh, uh, good for me, I think it's called. It, sound, it, remi- it reminded me of a Toto record, and so it, because Can't it sounded like Toto, Toto record. Uh, it it I it said uh, that single I liked, and every other song on that, including Baby Baby, the big hit, did nothing for me. And yet there are younger critics who are referring to it as a pivotal record because of the crossover from Christian into pop, sure. and, and you know the 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 sonics of that record, and that those sheeny keyboards on that on Baby Baby make my skin crawl, but. Some of that's just my age. It's sure. kind of like I was at my peak cynicism because I was in college and I liked what I liked and I didn't, I really hated what I didn't like. And everybody's going to have a period like that. Yeah. And, and I've been doing this long enough also to observe that you're going to be able to figure out the tricks, the magic tricks a lot easier, the older you get. So the fact that certain records in the eighties were copying moves from records from the sixties and the seventies that was invisible to me because I didn't know the antecedents. Yep. Now I do. And I go back and I go, Oh, okay. Yep. You know, that was not actually that new. Yeah. You the know? whole thing becomes a little more transparent. The older yeah, you get, the older you get. Yeah. And so, you know, boomer critics, for example, have not, or, you know, even older, like Robert Criscow is never going to come around on don't stop believing by journey. Right. You know, he still thinks that's corporate rock to use the term that boomer and older critics use to describe the wave of journey, Boston sticks. They can claim anything after 1974 is corporate rock. Right. Right. And they they might be right. (laughs) And they will never soften on that. They still, they, they think it was schlock then and it's schlock now. They're, they're not softening on that. I remember when I was in music school, this would be 96 or so. And hooting the blowfish was big. Mm -hmm. Those records were big. And, uh, some kid in this, and our generation has this whole idea of selling out, right? Like, right. you know, the, the authenticity is, is everything. Right. Of course, the kids nowadays, they don't care about they it. Like, if you can make a buck, all. make a buck. Like, right. you know. Do what you got to do. Yeah. And somebody was making a whole, oh, those guys are sellouts and this, that, and the other thing. And one of my, one of the professors was just like, are you kidding me? He says, those guys played in bars for probably seven years before they ever got a record. And that Darius record recorded the vocals to their last album supposedly in like one day like basically did a take of each track right if you don't think these are serious musicians who care about what they're doing you think they're only in it for the money you're out of your mind right like that 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 we all everyone thinks that whoever else is in what we're doing is a poser right there's always somebody who's more anal about it than we are you know what i'm saying and and we'll call us a poser even however seriously we take it i agree with everything you just said there's also another nuance to it thinking about Hootie and the Blowfish in particular, right? Yeah. Part of the reason we hated it in 94, 95, when Cracked Review was selling like, you know, a couple hundred thousand copies a week, every yeah. week, was that things become less oppressive over time when they are not the dominant thing. Overplayed. Oh, right. Overplayed or just commanding the culture. Like, I am soft and um, 
fond of Mariah Carey now in a way that I would not have been 25 years ago. I found her oppressive. She was everywhere. Every song went to number one. She literally has almost as many number one songs as the Beatles. And, and I regard her, regarded her as a malevolent force now. Okay. I have not become a Mariah Carey fan, but I am a fan of certain of her songs and I'm able to say, Oh, that was a good single and that's good. And this is good. And you know, my friend, uh, another thing that's happened in the last, since the last time I talked to you is my friend, Tom Bryan launched his, um, uh, blog series for Stereo Gum, the number ones, where okay. he's going all the way back to 1958 and reviewing every number one song in the history oh, in order. Funny. He's up to 1991. He just reviewed uh, Justify My Love. He's doing one a day. He's doing three a week, Monday, okay. Wednesday, and Friday. Okay. And I was aware of the project when he was in the 60s and 70s, but not following it regularly. And then, of course, when he got to my sweet spot of the 80s. Sure. I began reading it like a religion. And now I know exactly when he drops each new one. And on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays around 9 a.m., I log in because I want to see what he's written. Sure. And I immediately tweet my thoughts afterward, whether I agree or disagree with him. But what's been fascinating about that is Tom was born in 1979. I was born in 1971. That eight years makes a difference. He's far less cynical about, first of all, Bon Jovi, whom I can't stand. Sure. He, he gave like- Famously, you can't stand. Famously, I can't stand. I think he gave a six or higher and mostly eights, nines, and tens to all of the Bon Jovi songs that I despise. Um, but also that period when I was in college, when he was still only about 12 or 11, he likes a lot of, he hasn't gotten up to baby, baby by Amy Grant yet, but he liked, uh, he loved hold on by Wilson Phillips, which man, I consider that song oppressive as hell. I can't stand Hold on by Wilson Phillips. So like age makes a difference. Knowing the tricks makes a difference. He liked the singles on bad by Michael Jackson better than I did. He likes dirty Diana better than I do. He likes, I just can't stop loving you better than I do. You know, so it's not, everybody's got their own opinion. Opinions are like assholes. Ha ha ha. Yeah. But some of it, it really depends on what you bring to the table. You know, when you do listen to stuff nostalgically too, I was watching the, uh, there's a David Foster documentary. Mm. The kid was on, I think Netflix and you're watching him and David Foster's, kind of an asshole yeah like he, i mean like he and yet he's he's recorded he's an incredibly successful guy yes i mean obviously the man and i've knows hated how to, some of what he's done and i've loved some yeah, of what he's done the man can write and or produce and or you know he the guy knows how to make a record he does you know? and so you can't fault him for anything you know and you and you listen to the thing and they're playing they're talking to some of the guys from chicago who you know, they regard him as a malevolent force right? because in he, Chicago, 16, 17, he came in and he, you know, he's he went pro Chicago anymore. He went heavy into Pete Cetera's ballads. And, exactly. Yep. And, 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 and got rid of the horns to a large extent, to a you large know? degree. Yeah. And, and, but you know, and, and they have him on there and they have some of the Chicago guys and complaining about it a little bit and they go back to him. And he's just like, he's like their record before the one I sold like 150,000 copies. He's like, Chicago 16 sold 15 million or whatever, you know, right. He's like, do you want to sell records or you want to sit around and complain and be artists? Yeah. And it was just, and you listen to all these different records. You look at the bodyguard soundtrack and you're like, holy crap. I I didn't, obviously I know how great Whitney Houston is, but you go back and listen, you go, my God, she was something at that point in her career. I know how great Whitney Houston is. And there were Whitney Houston songs I liked in the late eighties and early nineties, but I regarded her as something of a malevolent force back then too, because of the way she brought melisma on the charts and everybody was trying to oversing the way she, frankly, she didn't oversing. I I, I can now say. Now you look back and you go, Oh no, she did. She's spicing like as much as she should without going too far. I am now old enough to realize what a genius she was as a singer. I, I can use the G word. She really was as a singer, a genius. Yeah. 
and I've, I'm a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame voter. I, I have a ballot. Yeah. This is one of my little prideful points that I, I actually get a ballot uh, as a critic. And uh, I voted for her in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And if you had told 20-year-old Chris Malanfi, you're going to vote for – wrote in Whitney Houston in the Rock and Roll Hall yeah. of Fame, I would have said, you're freaking crazy. I yeah, hate yeah, Whitney Houston. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I didn't even have to think twice about it. I'm like, oh, absolutely. She, she got one of my first votes. I'm like, she's getting in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, because – when things are less oppressive and they're not everywhere and they're not dominating the culture, you can actually, I, I have not come around that much on Hootie and the Blowfish. I will I, say. I, yeah. I mean, I, uh, I like Darius Rucker and what he's done in country better than I like Hootie and the Blowfish, yeah. but you know, I, I don't regard them as oppressive anymore. <laughs> let's there, let's at know, least say that there was, there was, if you ever get to watch it, you should watch it because there's a scene where the, uh, apparently he was, David Foster was producing Celine Dion's version of all by myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, there's the crazy thing where she goes up to the high note. Yeah. 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 Right. She hits a huge note. Yeah. And, and apparently he, he brought her in there and she was young at the time and, right. and she does it and he goes, and she kind of nailed it the first time he, he says, but you know, we, I made her do it a few more times. They cut back to her and she's like, yeah, he made me do a few more times. And, uh, uh, and he was right. This, that, and the other thing And they cut back to him and he goes, and I looked at her and I said, Hey, listen, if you can't hold the note, Whitney Houston's down in studio. C. I I can bring her over to hold it for you. Holy cow. <laughs> It's not, man, that is harsh. That is rough (laughs) because singers take that shit mad seriously. But you know what? I mean, and and they cut back to her and she's like, he's, he's a bit of a carrot and stick kind of producer. That is well put. (laughs) Wow. Points to Celine because she's right. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, it's just interesting. But yeah, you go listen to all these records. You're like, my God, there was so much stuff that you don't appreciate in the moment because Mm-hmm. You hear it too much or it's not of your style or you're too young or whatever right. it is. And right. one of the nice things is going back and saying, my God, that was a great record. Right. Might not like the artist, you know, but that song is great. That record sounds great. And it'll be interesting to see 15 years from now, if you and I come back and decide that something that was number one this week that we didn't like, maybe butter comes around and you, beca- it's the, your favorite maybe song. Maybe butter. Of- I mean, to bring it all around, <laughs> Dynamite is probably the best BTS it's such a single. Good song. It's really a good song. Like I heard it once and I'm like, oh, they're gonna have a number one record and they, and they deserve it. It's yeah. like it's a good, good song. Frank, but Dynamite was written by committee roughly the same way Butter was written. Yeah. It's not as if one was written far better. I like I like Butter. I think it's okay, but it's it's a middle of the road hit. Sure. Whereas I actually think Dynamite's a terrific single. But maybe things will change and you know. Butter will be the don't stop believing of BTS's career or like automatic by the pointer sisters. Like now that's the pointer sisters record. You're yeah. likely to hear it on the radio, but 20 years ago they were more playing jump for my love and I'm so excited. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. now I rarely hear I'm so excited and I hear automatic everywhere. And by the way, they're right. Automatic's a better record. <laughs> um, who's the one with the deep voice? Is it Ruth or Donnie? Oh, I could never, I've never made the, the one with the, the really, the, a woman with a basso profundo voice and she sings lead on that record. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant move. And it's like, it's why automatic is great. Um, but like, you never know how these things are going to change and they evolve, you know, yeah, it's a- um, landslide was the Fleetwood Mac song for about a decade yeah. after Billy Corgan covered it. It's a good cover actually. And then, and now it's dreams again. Yep. You know, because even before TikTok, Dreams was coming up. And now Dreams is the Fleetwood Mac song you're going to hear on the radio. And is literally two chords. 
Yeah. The whole song is two chords. Yeah. And, but it's the brilliant what they do with those two yeah. chords, yeah. you know? And then of course, around the Clinton years before the landslide thing, don't stop, don't stop, uh, don't stop uh, thinking about tomorrow. Yeah. Don't stop as it's called. That was, that was their radio hit. So like literally Fleetwood Mac, which old hit has been favored has changed in the last 30 years, three times. So who, who, who knows how this is going to change? You know, maybe we'll pick a different journey song. I doubt it, but maybe we'll pick a different journey song at some point. Yeah. Maybe it'll be a new song with their, uh, Filipino singer guy. I doubt that, but <laughs> no, what I'm saying is maybe, maybe faithfully, I could yeah. totally see faithfully. It's a great song. It's a great song and it didn't even crack the top 10. I could totally see. I think faithfully. it's my favorite. By the way, the, the backstory on faithfully Prince acknowledged that he ripped it off for purple rain. Really? Same chords. Uh, he, and he knew it at the time because Prince is a genius. Yeah. Prince doesn't need to be told by other people when he's copying something. Yeah. He calls up, oh God, what's his name? It's going to drive me crazy. The writer of Faithfully is the, the, the guy who's made the most money in the band because he wrote all the big hits. Uh, Kane? Jonathan Kane. Thank yeah. you. Jonathan Kane. He calls up Jonathan Kane and I'm trying to picture Prince in his voice. Like, I, I think I borrowed your song. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, that, yeah. That deep voice of his, but he, Jonathan Kane has, has given interviews where he said, I got a call from Prince circa 1983, the year before Purple Rain. That must came have been a fun, a fun conversation. And he said, and I, I think I may have stolen your song. And sure enough, he played it for him and he said, you know what? We're, we're cool. And, yeah. you know, he may have, Jonathan Cain's made so many millions of dollars, he doesn't need Purple yeah. Rain money. But, you know, Purple Rain borrowed faithfully. So, you know. Which is funny because I've never been a fan of Purple Rain and I love faithfully. So what do I know? And then when Prince died, Purple Rain overtook When Doves Cry on the radio for a while. Like right. Purple Rain was the song you were yeah. likeliest to hear because everybody was mourning Prince and it sounded like the most mournful Prince song, yeah. you know? So you it's just- funny, The whole Purple Rain soundtrack was, the, it, to most people, the high point of Prince's career. I like the 1999 stuff and I like the later stuff, the, you know- Sign of the Times is my favorite. Yeah, right? Right. Never Take the Place of Your Man is a great oh, song. That's such a great song. And you got the look. Yeah. And, uh, and even, even though it wasn't a it was only a big R and B hit, not a big pop hit. Uh, if I was your girlfriend, sure. That song has legs, man. Yeah. It was interpolated by, uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce on Bonnie and Clyde, their record in the early aughts. Like she actually sings some lines from if I was your girlfriend in that record. Like if I was your girlfriend has legs, man, that's a great record. That's a, you know, next time we're going to have to, uh, just bring our favorite record. We'll do a top 10 of our okay. favorite records to see if we agree or disagree. That, that'll be fun. Chris, I, thank you so much for coming by. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, always fun talking.